Welcome to Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. I'm your lead investigator on this case, Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Every episode is an investigation where you and I explore true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. We discuss the cases, share information, no chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. Now, grab your crime scene kit, a notebook, and your favorite hat. This is Best True Crime Podcast. A little boy goes missing. The little boy is reunited with his family. A custody battle occurs between strangers, one wealthy, one poor. And a DNA test almost 100 years later reveals the truth. This is Lost Boy Found Lost, the strange case of Bobby Dunbar. It was August 23, 1912, one of those sticky hot days in Louisiana. One of those southern days where your clothes stick to your skin and mugginess just kind of takes a life of its own. Swayze Lake is in St. Landry Parish. It was a great place to go fishing, swimming. It's cool, still waters beckoning folks to just slip in and cool themselves off on a sticky August day. One of those days that only Louisiana can be witness to. And that's just what the Dunbar family was doing that August 23rd. Today, Swayze Lake is still known for what happened that day when the Dunbar family arrived for a weekend vacation. The wealthy Dunbar family consisted of Percy and his wife Lessie and two sons, four-year-old Robert Clarence Bobby Dunbar, born on May 23, 1908, and his younger brother Alonzo. The Dunbars lived in Opelousas, not far from Swayze Lake. They had met a group of friends for a camping trip to play in the water and do some fishing. Then Percy, a serious businessman, was called away for work. He assured Bobby he would return the next day. Percy left Bobby, who was just having a fit over his daddy leaving him. Bobby was so upset, he tore the ribbon off of his summer hat. The group set up camp, had an uneventful day just swimming and fishing and having a good time, and then bedded down for the night. Uneventful until the morning. One story has little Bobby wandering away from the campsite at night. Another has him last seen going up a hill toward a railroad trestle. Still, another has him playing near the Swayze Lake shoreline. The charlieproject.com notes, When his family went to the cabins for lunch at noon, Robert apparently wandered away. Regardless, the family searched until fear set in, that sick feeling that sinks in when you know something has gone terribly wrong. They notified authorities. And soon, Swayze Lake was not so calm. Percy did return the next day to find Lessie so distraught she could not function, and so many volunteers roaming the woods calling Bobby's name. A search party was combing the area, and some accounts have Bobby tracked to the lakeside, 
Others have Bobby's footprints along railroad tracks. Alligators in the lake were caught, killed, and ripped open for potential evidence. Dynamite was tossed into the river, hoping it would bring a body to the surface of the water. It yielded nothing except a deer that had drowned in the lake. The lake area was searched over and over and over. Nothing. Lessie was so upset she couldn't bear to be near the campsite, and she left for home. He was only four, the authorities concluded. He fell in and drowned. A tragedy, to be sure. Unfortunately, it wasn't uncommon. Children get away from you so quickly, and the water just beckons them. Then, things changed. Bobby's little hat was discovered some distance away from the lake. Given the wealthy status of the Dunbar family, now the words kidnap was on the lips of everyone involved. Kidnapping in the early 1900s was not an unusual crime. When the 1920s would roll around, it was one of the top five crimes in the United States, thanks to the Great Depression, Prohibition, and the rise of organized crime. As the Dunbars were a wealthy family, it was assumed they would be receiving a ransom note soon. Children have been stolen from families since the dawn of time, and in America, the word kidnap dates back to the 17th century. It meant steal children to provide servants to the American colonies. The Federal Kidnapping Act didn't exist until 1932, so for now it was the job of the local police to investigate Bobby Dunbar's disappearance. Percy Dunbar and Opelousa's officials offered a $6,000 reward for information about Bobby. Now, today, that would be around $160,000. Because of the Dunbar's wealth, they could afford to have missing flyers printed and posted everywhere, and they did, and they handed them out all over the city. Local and then national news picked up the story. The flyers described Bobby Dunbar in great detail, including a mole on his neck, and a scar on one of his toes. Now, there are two stories as to how the next piece of the story goes. One is, the Dunbars hired a private investigator for the case. Two is, a group of women sent a letter to the Dunbars regarding a local peddler in their town who was frequenting the area. The peddler was accompanied by a little boy, their letter read, who looked an awful lot like Bobby Dunbar. The peddler's name was William Walters. It was difficult to really tell if the child was Bobby because this kid was so filthy and always dressed in rags. By this time, the Dunbars had received thousands of letters and calls, all of them being false leads, and this just seemed to be another one. The excitement about the case had dropped out of the headlines, dropped out of the news, as big crime stories are wont to do. Lessie was already suffering from depression, an eating disorder, and insomnia. She was a dark skeleton of her former self since the loss of her oldest child. Send us a photo, Percy wrote the group of ladies. So, they did. And this boy certainly looked like their Bobby. 
We're fast forwarding to April 13, 1913. Police are handcuffing William Cantrell Walters near Columbia, Mississippi. Walters was the peddler who specialized in tuning and repairing pianos and organs. Walters was traveling with the boy who certainly matched the description of Bobby Dunbar. William Walters told the police, The boy's name is Charles Bruce Anderson. We call him Bruce, and he's Julia Anderson's son. Julia worked for the Walters family in North Carolina. Julia had granted custody of Bruce to William. Still, William's answers to police questions just changed slightly over time. William had spent quite a bit of time in Poplarville, Mississippi, and folks there had gotten to know him and little Bruce. And some of these people reported William Walters had been seen whipping Bruce on more than one occasion. Now, police had the Dunbar family travel from Louisiana to Mississippi to possibly identify the little boy. Can you imagine the anxiety that Percy, Lessie, and Alonzo must have felt? Here is a boy who looked a lot like their missing boy. Same age, same eye color, same hair color, traveling with this peddler who insists he has custody of the boy, calling him Bruce. Percy Dunbar took the trip alone by railway. And when he was sure it was Bobby, he sent for Lessie. Until, finally, Lessie Dunbar and her potential son meet face to face. Depending on what journalist wrote what story, here's what might have occurred. The boy knew things only Bobby would know. This boy had the exact same eye color and the exact same hair color as little Bobby Dunbar. This boy had the exact same mole on his neck, but he did not have a scar on his toe, which could have changed due to age. The boy would not respond to the name Bobby Dunbar. The boy immediately called Leslie, mother, and ran to Leslie. The boy cried, and Leslie Dunbar said she was unsure whether he was her son. Some newspapers cited both the Dunbars as doubting the boy's identity. The boy either knew his brother Alonzo, or he didn't. Leslie Dunbar gave her alleged son a bath and told the media she knew then this was her missing Bobby because of his moles and his scars. The boy cried when either Dunbar tried to embrace him. And then, Julia Anderson arrives on the scene. Julia Anderson was a hard-working woman who toiled in the fields trying to make ends meet. She had had three children out of wedlock with one child dying in infancy and the other one she had to adopt out. Bruce was the only child she currently had with her. She was not a sophisticated woman. She was not slim or careful with her appearance. She had lived a tough life. Julia had some interesting things to say, 
and now discrimination and the times play a role in this case. Julia confirmed she was employed by the Walters family doing hard labor and taking care of the Walters matriarch. She confirmed the boy traveling with William was her flesh and blood son, Bruce. She stated, yes, she had granted permission for William Walters to take Bruce, but only for a two-day visit to visit Walter relatives. Authorities placed five different boys, including Bruce, in a sort of lineup for Julia Anderson to try to identify her son. Julia looked over the boys and asked if Bruce was the boy who was identified as Bobby by the Dunbars. Of course, authorities could not answer her. Julia stated she was just unsure. The next day, she was allowed to undress Bruce and she identified him by moles and scars. Yes, this is my Bruce. That boy, she told authorities, was definitely her son. But Julia Anderson's uncertainty and her lot in life played against her. She was unable to identify Bruce in the lineup. Most importantly, her moral character worked against her. She was, after all, unmarried with three children, one who was dead and the other she had to adopt out. Some newsmen even labeled her a prostitute. Others called her a horrible mother, although they didn't even know anything about her. They wrote of her coarse nature. Julia Anderson's claim of being the parent of the boy she called Charles Bruce were dismissed. Julia, heartbroken, went back to North Carolina. There was no way she could afford any legal assistance. Bobby Dunbar would go home to a parade with a big brass band and a party in his honor. His family would ride into town on a fire truck, waving happily at the cheering crowd. Bobby was even gifted a pony and a new bicycle, and the crowd was sharing a big cake, and there was a song written for Bobby, and it was recorded. There was even a theater play performed, highlighting his story. Bobby Dunbar went home to a big fancy house and played with all new toys. On July 2, 1914, William Walters went to trial for kidnapping, and Julia Anderson returned to testify on his behalf. Bobby Dunbar, she insisted, was not Bobby Dunbar. He was really Charles Bruce Anderson. Now, remember William had spent time in Poplarville, Mississippi? The Poplarville folks who had gotten to know William and little Bruce testified on William's behalf, and they had seen William with Bruce before Bobby Dunbar went missing. Still, William Walters was convicted of kidnapping and sentenced to life in prison. He served two years. His sentence would be overturned. To try him again was going to cost an excessive amount of money, so William Walters was released, a free man. And the boy in the middle of this story? It was the trial of the century. St. Landry Parish Court Judge Pavey awards him to the Dunbars, and he lives the rest of his life as Bobby Dunbar. 
life would not continue to be so rosy in the Dunbar home. Lizzie would leave her family to move to New Orleans in 1920. Percy, who already had a criminal record to include infidelity, would be arrested for stabbing a man. Julia Anderson had made friends in Poplarville and stayed there after the trial. She would marry, have seven children, she would found a church, and she became a nurse and a midwife. Her life was happy, but it wasn't fulfilled. The Dunbars, she insisted until her death in 1940, kidnapped her son Bruce. She was sure of it. William Walters died in 1945, proclaiming his innocence to the grave. In 1966, Bobby Dunbar, a popular businessman and churchgoer, having married and raised four children, was killed in a car crash. In and around 2008, Julia Anderson's children would all recall past visits with Bobby Dunbar, who would make some mysterious remarks. The story still drifted through the town occasionally, but most of it was forgotten. Usually it stayed in boxes of musty old newspapers in Bobby Dunbar's attic. And there was the scrapbook of all the newspaper clippings that Lessie had saved for Bobby, who had passed it on to his own children, who passed it on to their children. Was it a hoax? Mistaken identity? Kidnapping? A crackpot story? discrimination or politics? Who was Bobby Dunbar? Who was Bruce Anderson? The answer became clear in 2004 with simple hereditary material involving a polymer, double helix, and nucleic acids. Yep, a DNA test. Margaret Dunbar Cutright, one of Bobby Dunbar's granddaughters, had set out to prove her grandfather really was a Dunbar. It was just time to quell the rumors for once. And she was piecing together the story, going through that old scrapbook that Lessie Dunbar had put together, and she spoke with Bob Dunbar Jr., who consented to a DNA test. To everyone's shock, results revealed that Bob Jr. was not related by blood to the son of Alonzo Dunbar. Alonzo being Bobby Dunbar's brother. All this time, through all those years, frustration, legal issues, money, tears, and trauma, the boy called Bobby Dunbar is not the boy who disappeared that hot August day on the 23rd in 1912. But this lost boy story still has so many unanswered questions. The real Bobby Dunbar probably fell into Swayze Lake or wandered off and was eaten by predators. Or was he? If not, what is the real story of Bobby Dunbar's disappearance? Where is Bruce Anderson? Was he the man who all these years was called Bobby Dunbar? Was William Walters related to Bruce, perhaps his father, or was he his uncle? And did William Walters take Bruce under his wing because Julia could not afford to care for him? 
Julia Anderson's family was, of course, overjoyed that Julia was finally proven right. Still, we don't know if the fake Bobby Dunbar was the real Bruce. William Walters was posthumously exonerated of the kidnapping accusation. Some members of the Dunbar family were not happy with her for bringing up what they considered to be an issue long buried. They resented their family member, and now there was a question. Were they truly Dunbars? The charlieproject.org lists Bobby Dunbar as endangered missing and reports. The identity of the child who was identified as Bobby Dunbar is unknown. He has not been proven to be Bruce Anderson or anyone else. With the results of the DNA testing, Robert was again classified as a missing child. It is possible that he fell off the railroad trestle and died, but his fate remains a mystery. His case is no longer being investigated by law enforcement due to the passage of time. If you have any information that may be helpful to this case, you can contact Best True Crime at www.besttruecrime.com or The Charlie Project at charlieproject.org. Maybe you can help finally solve the case where a little boy went missing, was reunited with a family, and a DNA test almost 100 years later revealed the truth. Or did it? This was the strange case of Bobby Dunbar. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there. Thank you for joining me on this investigation, exploring true crime, forensics, historic cases, dark history, and criminal theory. This is Best True Crime Podcast. No chatter, no commercials, no off-topic. I do hope you will subscribe. This podcast runs off donations only. You can drop us a donation, $35 or more, and I'll send you a signed book. Just go to www.besttruecrime.com. My name is Judith A. Yates, award-winning true crime author, a criminologist, and a paranormal explorer. Thank you for joining me on Best True Crime Podcast, a division of Best True Crime Books, Games, and Video, LLC. Be safe out there.